And so I'm going to, you know, station identification. This is channel ASS233. Uh, and, uh, it's, uh, the myth and ritual seminar for week number four. And, uh, what I want to do today or this evening, um, is I'm going to, uh, it's very rude of me, but I'm going to finish my lecture. If, if you don't mind, I haven't got much to say. I just want to read something out really. Um, and, um, and in fact, it's a good segue to our reading for this week by Carl Jung on, uh, on the trickster. So it's, it's, it's appropriate, um, that I do this. So bear with me if you, if you, if you will. Um, so as I said in the, in the lecture this afternoon, the major difference between Freud and Jung's approaches is that where Freud was mainly focused on the individual and with that, you know, the nature of individual psychopathology. So what happens to the individual psyche um, when it goes through its processes of development from childhood to adulthood and what possible things might cause it to, to, to be incomplete or to run in the wrong direction or to stay in the same place. Um, and, um, and Jung was also interested in individual psychotherapy. But he was interested in the nature of collective representations. Collective representations being a term for how human societies represent themselves to themselves and how, hello Matt, that's all fine. Um, I, I'm, as I just said, Matt, I'm just taking the opportunity to finish my lecture, uh, which I didn't finish today. Um, and so is how individuals become persons through the mediation of the collective representations. So the what the role that society and culture plays in the formation of individual um, consciousnesses. And so what Jung argued is that what we can see operating at the individual level of consciousness, pre-consciousness, the unconscious, as well as the, um, the superego, that which is outside the individual consciousness. Jung argued that there's a, there's something similar going on, but at the collective level. And that just as there's a, there's an individual unconscious, there's also a collective unconscious. And this collective unconscious consists of the archetypes. And this is one of the key notions of Jungian thought. And central to Jungian theory is that these archetypes of the collective unconscious are expressed largely in myth. And so myths are full of archetypes. And that the process by which we get 
repetition and mythical repetition is is effectively the collective unconscious which is in all of us talking to itself so these are the various um beings or personae that exist in a in in a mythical thought but we recognize them we identify them we and we identify with them and they start to speak through us now some of these archetypes are really fundamental archetypes um and they are giving expression to our really basic desires passions needs and so on and and they are the the archetypes of the mother and the father and so you'll find mother archetypes and father archetypes in myth and they're very very much the simple the simple ones and then connected to them though is the shadow and the shadow is in jungian terms the expression of what freud called the infantile desire to 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 transgress so in that sense in 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 jungian terms what you see in the edipal myth is an expression of that shadow archetype and it's it's desire to break the rules but the critical thing is that the shadow archetype is not just all about wanting to kill the father uh and marry the mother there's is much more going on in the shadow archetype than that um jung is also incidentally known for the development of the kind of counterpoint to the edipal um uh the edipal relation and that's what he called the electra relation and with that the electra complex um and that's a term that was coined by jung in 1913 that describes then the 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 female child's relationship to the father now now freud wouldn't have well, didn't agree with it he said everybody goes through an edipal phase because everybody's a baby um but what you don't necessarily go through is a process whereby you go through this stage where you want to kill your father um as an infant you're angry with your father and then your father basically shows himself to be more powerful than you so you then go through the process of identifying with your father and this doesn't happen obviously with girls but they might form an excessive attachment to the father as father and this is what Jung called the electric complex um and you know be that as may it's a small point but the main point i want to get across is this idea of the trick uh, the, the 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 archetypes the concept of the shadow archetype and then the figure of the trickster now um in the case of the trickster and this essay that we're reading for this week this is a trickster that is drawn from a particular native american tradition um from what is now known as the state of nebraska uh and this is a group of people who are known as the winnebago um now many of you may have seen the american um camper van mobile home things and said oh is that a winnebago 
uh, well, it is, but it's named after a Native American people, as indeed are quite a number of North American car varieties over the years. Um, the cars that were made in the US by General Motors were, they, they used Native American names, um, to create cars like the Pontiac, for example. Um, and I think he, the Cadillac, I think, is, is another. Anyway, the Winnebago, uh, were a Native American people from the area of ne- Nebraska around Wisconsin. And, um, uh, they, they, they were decimated by disease. Um, uh, no, Lucinda, I haven't seen the documentary. Uh, the, but the Winnebago were decimated by disease prior to having extensive contact with Europeans. Um, and um, they were really dra- dramatically affected. But they, they hung in there. And Paul Radin um, is, was an anthropologist who was working mostly in the 30s, 1930s, and he wrote extensively about the uh, the Winnebago. And he recorded a lot of material about their trickster figure in their stories, a fellow by the name of Wakchunkaga or Wakchakaga. Um, and indeed, Wakchunkaga was not so much his name as the Winnebago language term for trickster. So you can translate Wakchunkaga as trickster, trickster this, trickster that. Uh, but he's also then acquired this name of Wakchunkaga. Now, the interesting thing about Wakchunkaga as a trickster is he has what we call a grotesque body. Um, this term grotesque body um, is derived from a Russian literary scholar by the name of Mikhail Bakhtin. Um, and he wrote a study of um, a med- late medieval French story called Gargantua and Pantagruel. Uh, it's a wonderful story, um, which I remember reading as a university student. And Gargantua is indeed an incredibly tall, big guy. Um, and he's kind of dumb, um, as tall, big guys, I'm speaking for myself, tend to be. Kind of dumb and a bit stupid. And, um, uh, Bakhtin picked up on this point that, you know, part of his very nature is that he has this odd body. He's a grotesquely, grotesque, not grotesque, horrible, but grotesque in that he's out of proportion. Um, and characters that are out of proportion and that this, um, highlights their capacity to to, to be transgressors. They, they, they break the boundaries. They break the mold. They cut through the categories. Um, and Gargantua and, and Wachonkaga too. They're also incredibly simple. They're, they're, they're real simpletons as well. And in, you read the story from the cycle from Raiden, for example, and Wachonkaga doesn't actually know that his left hand and his right hand are both joined to his body. And so at one point in the story, his left hand and right hand get into a fight with each other. So the hands are doing this, 
because they don't realise that they're both part. And, and he's saying, ouch, stop it, it's hurting. And But he doesn't quite understand that these hands are hands on his own body. Um, he also has, as part of his grotesque body, um, he has this enormous penis, uh, which is so big that it kind of drags around on the ground after him. So he actually detaches it and rolls it up in a coil and keeps it in a box, which he carries on his shoulder. Uh, so Vak Kaga's penis is this detachable, uh, enormous thing rolled up in a coil in a box that he carries on his shoulder, uh, except whenever he lets it out. And there's one of the stories when he lets his penis out and, and his penis spots um, a, a woman bathing on the other side of the river and she's actually the chief's daughter and um, and his penis sees the chief's, well, actually, he sees the chief's daughter and says, my word, she's very attractive. And next thing, his penis sets off and goes across the river um, and proceeds to um, have sex with the woman. Uh, and so the woman is sort of, we could say, in, sort of impaled by this gigantic penis that's come across the river and everybody's stopping, they're looking at it and... Um, uh, and they don't know what kind of monster this is, and so they're beating it with sticks, um, and then an old woman comes and she says, no, 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 this is Trickster's, this is Trickster's little brother. Um, and so you have this sense of the Trickster as this character who, who breaks the boundaries. Um, and the one I just want to read out before I stop, is a story from the Trickster cycle recorded by Raven. When Trickster has managed to trick and deceive, uh, the trick and deceive, uh, some ducks into being caught by him and, and, and killed. He strangles these ducks. Um, and, uh, because he wants to eat them. So he's caught all of these ducks and he's decided that, you know, he's going to make some soup, uh, out of all of these ducks. So he says, um, he made a fire and cut some sharp pointed sticks with which to roast them. Some he roasted in this manner, while others he roasted by covering them with ashes. I will wait for them to be cooked, he said to himself. I had, however, better go to sleep now. By the time I awake, they will unquestionably be thoroughly done. Now you, my younger brother, not his penis, wait for it, must keep watch for me while I go to sleep. If you notice any people, drive them off. He was talking to his anus. Then, turning his anus toward the fire, he went to sleep. When he was sleeping, some small foxes approached, and as they ran along, they scented something that seemed like fire. Well, there must be something around here, they said. So they turned their noses toward the wind and looked, and after a while, truly enough, they saw the smoke of the fire. So they peered around carefully and soon noticed many sharp pointed sticks arranged around the fire with meat on them. Stealthily they approached nearer and nearer, and scrutinising everything carefully, they noticed someone asleep and said, It is Trickster, and he is asleep. Let us eat this meat but we must be very careful not to wake him up. Come, let us let us eat, they said to one another. 
When they came close, much to their surprise, however, gas was expelled from somewhere. <laughs> Such was the sound made. Be careful, he must be awake. So they ran back. After a while, one of them said, well, I guess he's asleep now. That was only a bluff. He's always up to his tricks. So they went back to the fire. Again, gas was expelled, and again they ran back. Three times this happened. When they approached the fourth time, gas was again expelled. However, they did not run away. So Trix's anus, in rapid succession, began to expel more and more gas. Still did they not run away. Once, twice, three times, it expelled gas in rapid succession. <coughs> Such was the sound it made. Yet they did not run away. Then louder, still louder was the sound of the gas expelled. <coughs> Yet they did not run away. On the country, on the contrary, they began now to eat the roasted pieces of duck. As they were eating, the trickster's anus continued its poo, its farting incessantly. And now the foxes ignored it and ate their fill. And then Trickster awoke and discovered that all the meat was gone and that nothing was left. And so he became very angry with his anus. He took one of the sticks that had been in the fire and that was still burning. And he said, I'm going to punish you for not looking after my ducks. And so with the stick, he poked him, he poked his anus as a punishment for the fire. And as Braden says, and that's why the anus has the shape that it has. Okay. <laughs> uh, you might be horrified. You're thinking, oh God. This, this myth and ritual class that I'm doing, uh, this myth and ritual class that I'm doing, we, he makes me read readings about people, um, uh, making the world out of their own fecal matter. And now he's telling a fart joke. And all right, you can say it's a scatological unit. Um, but the point why I'm telling is not in order to do scatology. Um, and be endlessly talking about poo and farting. But I love the fact that Wak Chunkaga punishes his own anus with a stick. He doesn't have any sense that this is his own body until, indeed, he pokes it with a burning stick and starts yelling, ouch, ouch, this is hurting me. And he, he is absolutely naive he is completely naive and but he's all about the passions and hence the chief the chief's daughter hence killing the ducks for food he has no morality at all he's prior to morality he has no sense of body he's before we have that sense of body he is pure infant in that regard. And as you can imagine, these stories, these trickster stories are told um, to children. Now, there are many trickster figures in our world, many, many trickster figures in our world, in our mythologies. The serpent in the story of Genesis is a trickster, a classic example of a trickster. Prometheus is a trickster. 
in more contemporary cultures. Bart Simpson is a trickster. He's the eternal child. Uh, Beetlejuice, if you've ever seen the film Beetlejuice, if you've ever seen the cartoon character Bugs Bunny, or in this last picture that I'm showing you in this slide, but now I'll show a little bit more, or the figure of Br'er Rabbit. Br'er Rabbit is a very famous American trickster. But Br'er Rabbit is is himself a really interesting mythological creature because he's an amalgam of West African trickster stories and Native American trickster stories. In the West African traditions, you find uh, oftentimes the trickster is called spider. He's a spider. In other trickster traditions, though, in North in the North American, it's a hare uh, who is the who is the trickster figure. Br'er Rabbit and all of the stories are a kind of a, a syncretism of West African and Native American trickster stories brought together, and oftentimes with the same overlapping themes. One of those themes, for example, is the story of what the, of a figure who became known as Tar Baby, and Tar Baby was a cre a, a, a doll or a, made to look like a person, but actually made of tar, and it was created as a sticky trap for Br'er Rabbit because Br'er Rabbit went to speak to Tar Baby. Tar Baby didn't say anything, and then Br'er Rabbit got annoyed and hit him. And as soon as he hit him, his hand got stuck to Tar Baby, and then he tried to release his hand, but his other hand got stuck, and that trapped him. And then Br'er Fox came to eat Br'er Rabbit, and so the story goes. Now, that's the version that was recorded by a, a white American fellow in the late 19th century by the name of Joel Chandler Harris and he wrote a set a group of stories that became known as the old Uncle Remus stories and Uncle Remus was the character that 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 Harris created as the storyteller of these stories and it was basically based on the African Americans from whom he collected the stories, because these stories were very strong in a slave population in uh, in North America in the 19th century, and this is where they developed. Um, and the thing about Tar Baby is that there are parallels in the Tar Baby story in both West African traditions and also the Native American, except it's not tar but it's a form of a gum that's used, a sticky gum that's used. And nowadays, they, people people think Tar Baby makes is a reference to, to African-Americans and blackness, uh, when in fact it never was. It was sticky. It was about the stickiness of Tar Baby. Anyway, that's all I wanted to do, and I've taken too much time, but it tells us uh, key things that I want to say about the trickster. I'm hoping that many of you, have have encountered the Br'er Rabbit stories. Has anyone encountered Br'er Rabbit? Speak up on the microphone if you can. 
No one's ever, never, ever heard the Br'er Rabbit stories? Matt, no, Bianca, no, Alyssa. Um, That's so interesting. Yeah, when I was young, but um, we're talking 30 years ago, and I don't remember much uh, about it at all. It was only a one-off. Yeah, right. They're really lovely stories and very funny. And there's all sorts of interpretations about the nature of the Br'er Rabbit stories because the thing about Br'er Rabbit is he has a cunning intelligence. He's clever. So when he gets caught, for example, by Tar Baby, and this is the trap that Br'er Fox has created for him, um, Br'er Fox is then wondering how he's going to kill Br'er Rabbit. And Br'er Rabbit says, look, you can do what you like. You can, you can cut my head off. You can, you can burn me alive. You can boil me in water. But please, please, please don't throw me in that thorny briary pat, briar patch. Because that would be the worst that could possibly be done that would cause me terrible pain. So please kill me anyway, but that way. And so Br'er Fox hears Br'er Rabbit and says, my word, you really are terrified of the briar patch. I think that's how I will kill you. So he throws Br'er Rabbit into the briar patch. And Br'er Rabbit, being a rabbit, <laughs> escapes <laughs> because that's how they live. They live in the thorns. Uh, but he tricks Br'er Fox into making him believe this is the worst possible punishment I could have when, in fact, it's his escape. And so this is what they mean about the cunning intelligence of Trickster and that Trickster oftentimes has this kind of cunning intelligence, even though he's fantastically innocent and sort of silly. Um, if you know the figure of Bugs Bunny, from the Bugs Bunny cartoons. So people know Bugs Bunny. Thank you. Yes, Matt. Georgina, yes, Lizette. Yep, you've heard and you've seen those cartoons. Bugs is a classic example of a trickster. Classic example of a trickster. Because he, um, he has this amazing, cunning intelligence. He's always outwitting the people like Yosemite Sam um, and um, who's the other guy? Elmer Fudd. Uh, he's always outwitting them. Um, um, and But he's, he's not, there's nothing malicious about him. But you can look at Bugs Bunny and say, you know, this is straight out of the Br'er Rabbit tradition. Um, this is where it all sort of seems to come from. Um, and what they are is all examples of the trickster. Uh, Lucinda, I'm just looking at the text. Sylvester, Daffy Duck. Daffy Duck is a, is, is, is a trickster, but Daffy Duck tries to be too clever for his own good. So oftentimes Daffy Duck gets into trouble. Sylvester is not a trickster. Sylvester is an idiot, says I, the cat lover. Um, the Roadrunner, perfect example of a trickster. And the coyote is forever trying to catch the Roadrunner in the same way that Br'er Fox is trying to catch Br'er Rabbit. Br'er Rabbit. You loved it when you're young, Brad. 
gee, I, I love it still. I can watch those cartoons. <laughs> Till then. Willy Wonka, definitely. Definitely Willy Wonka is a, is a, is a very good example of a trickster. Okay, so tell me then, what does, what does Jung say a trickster reflects? I've already told us that, but how does, what is it, what are the examples that he uses? Who wants to have a go? And please get on the microphone. Shut me up. Shut me up. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, Lucinda. Hello there. Um, I'll just actually I'll be really polite and put the camera on as well. But um, I just want to say I didn't really um, pay much attention to the specific examples, but it just seemed to me that he seemed to be saying that Trickster came from our own primordial self, which was um, which was a self that was very much as Trickster is described. You know, no no conscience, no con no no sense of being, um, no sense of morality really. Um, and then as we developed our, whatever, our human um, capacities, then we began to distance ourselves ourselves from trickster with myth. So we sort of deride what we used to be. Is that correct or did I not understand that? No, 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 no. You've got a, you've made an excellent point. Okay. Um and 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 indeed, I I would develop a I would develop a and I will actually develop a a critique of Jung along these lines because Jung is saying he seems to be suggesting very much that just as trickster. Um, is a, a profoundly kind of infantile archetype. Uh, those traditions that celebrate trickster are closer to that infantile stage. Hmm. So, and that when you see the emergence of religion and moral and moral religion. You're seeing, in a sense, the maturation of society. See, I actually had a problem with that. When he says on page 161, these mythological features extend even to the highest regions of man's spiritual development, um, to me it sounds as though he's saying that our highest level of spiritual development is monotheism, is um, Western monotheism in particular. And it, it doesn't actually, and I, I, I actually, I just finished reading recently the structural, um, the structure of myth, and that is actually, to, to my mind, more, um, more accurate and honest because it actually says that we are all basically on the same level. We're all, we're all, um, we may have our myths are the, are sort of the same, and there's no, it's no, it's no measure of intelligence what your myths are essentially. Um, yes, and hello, Callum. I'll do Eurovision and say hello, Kiev. <laughs> hello. Sorry, I'm a little late. I've uh, got workers in and out of my apartment. Someone's um, balcony fell off the side of the building. So, yeah, you might see people walking behind me as well. So. <laughs> Sorry, right. I'm late. And hence, and hence, you're masked. You're masked up. 
Yes, yeah. James, I think that's right. <laughs> Only in Kiev. Yes, the balcony fell, <laughs> balcony fell off. Well, we've been talking about tricksters. Uh, well, it might have been uh, one of them who decided to have the entire balcony fall off the side of the building. I'm not sure. Hmm. <laughs> Well, where we were, what, what, and what, um, what Lucinda was just saying, which I thought was very interesting, um, but, but Lucinda, you're stealing my thunder. Um, this is where, this is where I'm going. Um, towards Levi Strauss's critique of the psychoanalytic approaches to mythology. No, 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 don't say oops. No, don't say oops, but uh, it's, 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 um, um, it's um, it's absolutely on the money, and I'm really pleased that you're kind of thinking along these lines. Um, in some ways, I would argue that DTM kind of sets us up for that kind of critique, which is a critique of the idea that we're looking at evolutionary stages in the nature of people's thought. Those sense of evolutionary stages that say, you know, well, once upon a time, there was primitive religion. And primitive religion would be something like Winnebago, you know, cosmologies. And and then they got sort of more developed and enhanced, and you see a certain kind of moral turn going on. Um, and we move into then the more moralistic religions. And so it's along those lines, you know, we go from doing trying to do magic to in, engaging in faith so i'm not going to try and make it rain or not rain because i'm um uh uh because i know that i can't control the rain so i'm going to talk about faith whereas the primitive is saying oh no 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 i can still try and make it rain uh, but that's a sense of kind of evolutionary stages, which then says, oh, and at a certain point you'll abandon religion altogether. Now, the, the approach we want to take is to say, no, that's not the case. Now, for, for somebody like Jung, it's slightly more complicated in his argument. He's not saying we will abandon mythology. It's rather that our mythologies and our our collective representations in our mythologies will develop along the lines of an individual's developing consciousness. And that what you do is you become more at home with your archetypal characters and beings and so on. So for, for Jung, there are certain mythical States. I mean, the shadow never goes away, it would be Jung's point. It's a question of how we deal with it. Now, did anyone pick up um, what Jung had to say about Christmas? And its connection. Yes, Matt. Um, what I gathered... I'm not sure about the connection, but he was sort of talking about how Christmas is a mythology that um, even the, quote, civilised Western person will celebrate without thinking um, at all why 
they're doing it or the purpose behind it. Um, and in that sense, it's the same sort of, it operates the same sort of mythology as mythologies seen in the quote primitive societies. Is that sort of? Yeah. Um, exactly. But tell me then, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with you, Matt. Do you celebrate Christmas? Um, I'd say not if it was just me, no, but because my family celebrate it, I celebrate it sort of with them. Right. And the process of, let's, I just ask by show of hands, um, who, who celebrates Christmas with a Christmas lunch? And who includes in their Christmas lunch Christmas bonbons? So that's Matt, Georgina, Lucinda, Claire, James. And Laura, Christmas dinner. Okay. Does everyone know what I'm talking about when I say Christmas bonbons? So is there anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about? Okay. Now, when you, those of you, so I might ask Claire, because you had your hand up for the Christmas bonbons, so you celebrate the Christmas bonbons, and what what do you find in the Christmas bonbons? Uh, usually a Christmas hat and maybe a little joke or little toy. Yeah. Uh, and what's that Christmas hat resemble? A crown. A crown. So basically everyone is a monarch at Christmas. And the other thing that you have inside this bonbon is, all right, a cracker. Okay, so you've got them too, Bianca. Um, and would everyone agree, I'll get back to that, James, would, would everyone agree that bonbon or cracker jokes are examples of the worst jokes in the world? That they rarely elicit a laugh, but they always elicit a groan. Yeah. They're wonderful, aren't they? Horrible. Dad jokes. Oh, oh be careful, Matt. Um, That's where we're, I get, we're, getting, we're getting all edible here. Now, the interesting thing is I would suggest to you that those of you who indulge in these Christmas crackers or bonbons are actually all turning into tricksters. And that what you're doing when you do that is that you give yourself a grotesque body in the form of a paper crown so that you're a, pat- you're a parody of kingship you're a parody of kingship who then tells a bad joke. 
there's and, and you then you look the the sense of naivety and simple mindedness. You are James very stupid. And there's the fun. Because the beauty of that is that what you're doing is you are shattering the boundaries of conventional kinship, authority, structures, etc., etc. So you engage in this act of anti-structure. And that's what the Christmas bonbon, it's transgressive anti-structure when you're doing it. And it's giving expression, arguably, to the trickster. Now, you think, oh, okay, and and in what way is it an expression of the shadow? A lot of people make the mistake of thinking that the shadow is evil. The shadow is not evil. It doesn't obey the rules. It's full of desire, but it's not evil. Evil, I want to kind of take, as I said last week, you know, with Vernon's thing, it's like, let's take evil out of it. Exactly, Bianca. If you're running in a moralistic black and white good evil world, then you look at this and you go, oh, this is evil. No. It's not about evil. Let's keep, you know, you might, I might, you might think I'm really strange if I say we need to show evil more respect. By which I mean, recognize it for what it is and don't just throw in everything that's bad or transgressive as evil. Evil is much worse than that. And that what we see with the trickster, the trickster is not evil. The trickster is a transgressive being. He's that, he's that being who thinks they can dance. You know who I'm talking about, don't, don't you? Do, do you people dance? Yeah, you dance. No, you, you never dance, Laura. Is that right? You never go dancing with friends? You do go dancing. James, always. Right. And and I'm guessing that you're probably terrible dancers. I'm guessing you're terrible dancers. I'm not sure because I truly, I mean, I don't dance often. No, no, I, I think I never danced before. Yes. James says, if there's music I'm in and I look terrible. Exactly. But you're doing it. You're carrying on. James is carrying on like a complete clown. And how wonderful is that? Now, that's what I mean about the transgression. You're breaking the rules, but it's not evil. When it's my dancing, you might start to say, well, hang on, I think we better call in the moral compass here. But that's another matter. Um, but 
what I'm saying is that if you're dancing and you're partying and you're carrying on like a silly person, that's the trick. That's the shadow. That's the shadow. It's not, ooh, I'm going to do something terribly, you know, I'm going to sleep with my best friend's wife. You know, no, I'm going to dance like an idiot. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Now, what Jung notes is that the Christmas ritual that we have is based on the Roman ritual called the Saturnalia. And it was a party at that time of the year, the winter solstice, basically. And people partied. And so it's not exactly Christmas, it's the whole season, which includes New Year. Is that when Saturn is most visible? I'm not so sure about that, um, Lucinda, in terms of the astrology. It might well be um, that it's associated with Saturn and the Saturnalia. Yeah, I would have thought that that's right, James, that that, that varies. Um, but it's, it is, it's a, it's more connected to not so the planet maybe as, as the, as the God. And the key thing about it is that in the Saturnalia, you think of the Saturnalia and you can say, okay, so it's not just Christmas, it's Christmas and New Year. And, um, so who amongst you uh, goes to a New Year's Eve party? Claire? Yep. Alyssa? Callum does? Brad does? Does Saturn represent Kronos? Ooh. You want to have a look at um, uh, a guy? Uh, no, I'll leave it. It's a guy called Erwin Panofsky on uh, the symbol, the symbolism of Father Time. Um, um, but um, the the point now, tell me. Uh, and so, what do you do at midnight on New Year's Eve? Yes, uh, we count down. Usually from yeah. ten to zero. Um, yeah. It depends on what New Year's Eve it is. If it's um, if it's the thirty first of December to the first, um, then yeah, that's what we usually do. But I've also, while living in China, celebrated Chinese New Year, which is a little bit different. They still do the counting, but it's for different. And with the Chinese New Year. Um, I might ask Laura, because um, Laura, you're in China, aren't you? You're in Shanghai? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still in Shanghai now. Yeah. And Chinese New Year, you count down? Uh, these days, not yet, but we, but the, when the television is on, yes, they will count down, like count from mm. 10 to 0, like this, to the, um, I think it's 12 a.m. next, next, uh, tomorrow, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And and Lucinda, did you was it Lucinda who said you kiss? That you kiss. Well, I know that that's the tradition that we that people kiss at midnight. You know, yeah. you, and you sing old Anzine and all that sort of thing. I'm not really into New Year's, but I know that that's what people do. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. And um, and you know, and many well, when you're as old as me, you, you've been you've had enough awkward moments. Um, <laughs> enough to make you stay home. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, um, but nonetheless, um, the critical thing though is, and, and, and what's interesting is that very often New Year's parties in the Australian tradition, and I think English, American and so on, um, are fancy dress parties. So they're oftentimes that when you have a fancy dress party, and they're often associated with letting off fireworks. And there's this sense of, real sense of eruption, explosion, colour, joy, but also breaking rules, breaking boundaries um, that occurs. Now, what, what Jung is saying is that the Saturnalia as the Roman feast was a form of expression of the trickster figure. And the article that you've just read is showing that he's reading Raiden's account of the Winnebago trickster and he's saying, you know, this is, this is an expression of the archetype. But the archetype is the shadow archetype. It's that infantile boundary breaking archetype. Is what, is what Jung is identifying. But you're quite right, Lucinda. You raised the point that said, yeah, and he then tries to show that this is something that in Western Europe is then systematically repressed by moralizing religion. So that we repress the, the we repress the figure of the trickster in forms of moralizing religion. And indeed, you know, he becomes associated more and more strongly with the devil. Where, in fact, the serpent in the book of Genesis is not the devil. It's the trickster. But it becomes associated with that and then you see through that kind of repression the the formation of of morality and moralizing that's going on that's jung's argument so in well jung is saying that in the civilizing process if i can use that term you get a certain kind of repression of the uh uh of 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 these archetypes you ask about Satan and morality. Well, the, the, the concept of the battle with Satan. Um, now, Bianca. Oh, sorry, I disappeared that text, but that looked interesting. They happen to be chaotic in nature, not evil and malicious. Yeah, that's it. That's, you, you got it, Bianca. That's really good. 
So you can look at that and you can say, yeah, trickster is kind of naturalism. The kind of crazy nature. And the interesting thing is that it keeps going. And it keeps going in our myths. Think about who I was putting up on the screen before. I was, There was Bart Simpson. Now, had any of you ever thought of Bart Simpson as a mythical trickster? No. Now, he's a, he's a really good example. And what's interesting, if you look at the history of the Simpsons, is that Bart has become increasingly uninteresting to the story makers because they just didn't know what to do with him because he's just a pretty basic kind of a trickster. And the Simpsons has become more and more and more about Homer and Marge, I would suggest, but I haven't been watching it thoroughly. Um Oh, now this is interesting. In Nunga stories back home, we have a little hairy man we call Wadachil. Willy Wagtails lead little children to, to them. Yes, yeah, so they are, they're, they're trickster figures, Brad. They're trickster characters. And these are little stories which are told, told to children. And you kind of look at that and say, yeah, actually, is Santa Claus not a trickster? Be in camp before dark, Wadacha will get you. Yeah, there you are. Yeah, and, and, and this is the key. These, these figures, and they're not, they're not evil dangerous, they're sort of scary dangerous. You think, yeah, okay. So it's like the boogeyman. And you have a danger one too? What's, what's, well, what's that, Brad? Feather fart, feather, feather fart, feather. Can you use your microphone? I mean, bearing in mind, I did an impersonation of, of Vatrunkaga's anus. I think you missed that, Callum. Oh, okay. Okay. No problem. No problem at all. Okay. Well, okay. So the main thing I want us to get then from the Jung piece is that he, the trickster for Jung is very closely related to a, an archetype. And what Jung would say is, and the reason why we find trickster appearing in so many different mythological traditions is precisely because these mythological traditions are giving unique expression to the general type, archetype, which is the shadow. And that this 
archetype, shadow, is something of a joker, something of a boundary breaker, something of a transgressor. And what Jung then tries to chart in his paper is the sense of historical evolution. Now, this is where it gets a little bit complicated and we can get, as Lucinda did, can get a little bit sceptical. But it's just an idea, it's a notion that somehow we repress that which is in the primitive society, kind of in your face and out front and up front. It kind of gets repressed in modernity. But the archetype continues. And we see the archetype continuing through multiple transforms, which include popular culture versions like Bart Simpson, like Bugs Bunny. And then you've got the figure of Br'er Rabbit, really interesting from a mythological point of view, very interesting character, because Br'er Rabbit combines West African traditions that became American slave traditions with Native American traditions where you've got a similar kind of figure um, working and that these archetypes then uh, and, and that this cross-cultural validity would be taken by Jung as proof that these are indeed the archetypes of a collective unconscious. Yes, Lucinda. I just wanted to ask you if you think a lot of people that I know at least are saying lately that you can what what's happening in the world is that because we've repressed so much, particularly in the West, that there that it's almost like we're having a collective shadow experience. Would you say that there, there's any truth to something like that? Yeah, that's a very, very, very oh God, that's a big question, Lucinda. Because what I would say is that indeed. I think what we're in at the moment is a period of extraordinary renewal. Mm. And and with that extraordinary renewal at going on at multiple levels, and many of them intensely moralistic, in really intensely moralistic, um, you know, the kind of like, putting Victorian England to shame, but giving mm. us real insight into what Victorian England was about. Um, but we're in a world of such intense renewal because of the pandemic, because of the nature of the global changes that have been exacerbated by the pandemic, the fact that we are teaching like this, and Laura's in Shanghai and Callum's in Kiev, and we're all over the shop in different parts of the world, and this is our world now. Mm. And you can say, oh, but the technology, but, yeah, but we we just used to use it. We didn't depend on it. Yes. And so much change is going on like that. Um, and then you throw into the mix the pandemic, which is a fantastic leveller, it would appear, mm. in the sense, oh, my word, anybody can get it. But as Callum was telling us the other day, well, it's not just a matter of just anyone. And, you know, so we know that too. 
but we have this global, we're really feeling like we're in the world at the moment, and that's sparking a lot of thinking, a hell of a lot of thinking, which I can only say, well, it's good. And then I see the proud boys and think, oh, yeah, not all of it's good. <laughs> Some of it's just downright fascist shit. Mm. Um, but uh, around that, yeah, mythical beings of reorigination become in- interesting and important and mm. good to think with. So yep. if I can say, and it's at seven, one minute past seven, so we're out of time. But, yeah, I think I'm, I agree with Brad. It was a huge question. Um but a bloody good one, if I can say that too, because, you know, the thing that really is knocking me over, I've been teaching this bloody course for years, but boy, isn't it good to be thinking about the nature of mythology at the moment? It's what I keep telling myself. It's just like, pardon my language, but fuck, this is important to think about. So, you know, but that's me. I'm, as I think somebody said just before, I'm slightly eccentric. <laughs> so, whatever. Anyway, I hope this is all good. This is a break. We've got, I think, no teaching, no class next week. But that doesn't mean we don't have email and discussion boards. So jump in. And do as you like, okay, on that front. Thank you. I just saw that Brad is very kind of you, but I also know that I'm as mad as I'm 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 as mad as Vak Chunkaga. But in case you're interested, and I know none of you are, which is a good thing, no, I don't carry anything around in a box. Okay. And on that I'm stopping. <laughs> But remember, discussion boards, emails, they're all working. Otherwise, I will see you all in two weeks, okay? Okay, all the best, everyone. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.